Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, happy May. It's kind of still spring here in Portland. I mean, maybe even winter. It's been cold and rainy, but you never know. Summer will come eventually. I want to start out my rant from HartmanReport.com. It's titled, A Third of America is Lost to Hate. Is it time to move on? And my basic premise is that it's time for us to stop normalizing these people. Oh, they're just Republicans. It's time to stop accommodating these white supremacists. Well, yes, we're going to have these people on our program, but we're not going to point out the fact that they're white supremacists. Yes, Tom Cotton or whoever it may, you know, one of these Republicans from the hearings with Judge Jackson and whatnot. Let's start calling them out. If a third of America is lost to racism, and I really think that's true, roughly half of white people who vote, you know, who voted for Donald Trump and who are just like, they are stuck in the past. They want to return America to a past that was America when I was born. I was born in the 1950s, and I remember the 1950s, and it was a very different America. And we're not going to go back to that, but these people think they can do it. They really think they can do it. In the 1950s, the decade where I was born, I was born in 51, so I, uh, you know, I remember at least the last five years of that decade quite well. Blacks and other minorities, depending on where you lived in the country, were confined to certain parts of town. They were routinely beaten, arrested, or even killed for stepping into whites-only areas. In 1951, only 15% of blacks had been successful in registering to vote in the entire Confeder- old Confederacy, in all of the former Confederate states. Only 15% could even get to register to vote. And then showing up to vote was a whole brand new challenge. With few exceptions, the only minority faces seen on TV or in the media, back in, in the 50s it was mostly movies, were portrayed as either buffoons or criminals. Abortion was illegal, and in many states you could go to jail even if you were married for possessing birth control of any sort, including condoms in your own home. IUDs and birth control pills did not exist. Schools, restaurants, hotels, and most private businesses were racially segregated. Women, even white women, couldn't sign a contract, get a credit card, or open a bank account in their own names without a signature of a father or husband. Immigration into America was regulated to maintain the the country's racial balance at that point in time. 
Gays and lesbians were routinely beaten, imprisoned, raped, and murdered with no consequence to their tormentors. And police had carte blanche to terrorize and kill minorities of all types. Since then, since the 1950s, a lot has changed. In the 1960s and 1965, we changed our immigration laws so that they are now basically racially neutral. They're, they're colorblind, more egalitarian. We also changed our voting laws to make it a crime to forbid black people from registering or voting. And we changed our public accommodation laws, ending segregation in the United States. That all happened in the mid-1960s. The women's rights movement picked up steam after the legalization in 1961 of the birth control pill, but it was really in 1973, Roe v. Wade, that kicked off today's modern women's rights movements, movement. And uh, Republicans have, have successfully blocked the Equal Rights Amendment to this day. So we're not there yet, but, you know, step by step. And full, and also in the 60s, full citizen, well, not just in the 60s, actually, full citizenship for LGBTQ people picked up in the 90s after Reagan refused to even say the word AIDS during the entire eight years of his presidency. It picked up steam in the 90s and was finally realized in law, at least, when Vice President Biden and then President Obama endorsed gay marriage and the Supreme Court went along in June of 2015. You know, we've seen these over the last 30 years, these changes in both law and culture. And at the same time, we've seen a response, which is white, straight white male backlash. And it is the now today, the white male backlash, white male supremacy is the core product sold on right wing television and hate TV uh, talk radio and podcasts. The backlash has gone from passive resistance against integration to the Tea Party to openly declaring that Barack Obama was not a real American to right-wing media embracing the Great Replacement Theory, something that was first championed by America First actual Nazis 80 years ago. And so when we tried to realize our nation's founding creed that all men are created equal, that effort, largely by Democrats, has been twisted in the minds of Trump followers into a sinister plot to deny straight white men their place in their, their, their God-given role in American society. And now it's being used to justify political violence. 57% of Republicans say that January 6th was patriotic. It's being used to justify election rigging in 20 states or more. It's being used to justify court packing Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump. Tucker Carlson went off on this. I mean, you know, he, he laid out the Great Replacement Theory. As the New York Times, they outed him over the weekend in just this breathless, brilliant piece. And this virulent form of white supremacy has also spread to our churches. I realize you could say it's always been there. In fact, the churches were among the leaders in supporting slavery back in the day. But nonetheless, today, when PRRI asked if Trump had encouraged white supremacists a majority of black and Hispanic churchgoers said yes, 75 and 68%. But when they asked white churchgoers, is Trump encouraging white supremacists? 43% of Protestants and Catholics said yes, and only 26% of evangelical Protestants said yes. 74% said, no, no, Trump's not encouraging white supremacy. I'm of the opinion that these people are lost. There's no possibility. You know, occasionally I'll debate conservatives on this program 
conservatives will call in who are listening on our, you know, on the radio stations and whatnot and engage me in dialogue. And over time, I've had a number of those conservatives say, you know, you've convinced me the Reaganism was a disaster. We need FDR's, you know, we need to embrace turning America into a country that works again. But I haven't had, in the 19 years I've been doing this program, I haven't had one single white racist call and say, you know, you convinced me I should stop being a racist. I should stop being a white supremacist. Not one. And I think we should just, you know, give up. It's a third of America. They're lost. It's time to get on with the business of running the country. We need to have strong laws against their behaviors. We need to prosecute them when appropriate, when they break the law. When they're not breaking the law, we need to just say, hey, you know, it's a free country. People can say and do anything they want as long as it doesn't hurt other people. And, you know, we're going to let these people go. And when politicians, like the guys who tormented Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson in the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, when those people come on television, particularly on the Sunday shows, they need to be identified as white supremacists. Our media has really fallen down on this. White supremacism has seized the Republican Party, and it is never, ever mentioned in the media. It's time to call these people out. This is the Tom Hartman Program. What say you? Susie Coyote, I posted that at Hartman Report, and Susie Coyote replies, I grew up, and you can reply to my posts over there. I grew up in the 50s as well. America is not going back to that time. Women are not going to give up birth control and go back to the kitchen barefoot and pregnant as unpaid servants. Not even the most vocal and vicious of the female Republicans, Boebert Green, will go back to that despite their rhetoric. I I would point out, by the way, that over the weekend, Marjorie Taylor Greene um, said that basically women need to be married. That should be their role. It was so bizarre. She's talking about Democrats. She says they want to pay for child care. They want to they want to have a living wage. And these are things that are never going to solve the problems, actually. Why does a woman need to be married if she can be married to the government and keep getting a government check? Right. So anyhow, back to Susie Coyote on Hartman Report. Um, She says, uh, can you imagine Laura Ingram putting on a prairie dress and becoming a good submissive wife? Gays are not going back in the closet. They're done with that. They now have families, children, marriage and a stake in the national identity. Blacks will no longer sit at the back of the bus, as they did when I was a child. They won't use the back door, drink from separate water fountains, or stop protesting police brutality. The hateful 30% can cause sporadic civil unrest and likely kill innocent people. But they can't stop history, no matter how hard they try. Amen. Now, here's a group of people who are trying to bend history. Leading, this is from the Washington Post today, Carolyn Kitchener. Uh, Leading anti-abortion groups and their allies in Congress have been meeting behind the scenes to plan a national strategy that would put into place a strict nationwide ban on abortion if Republicans retake power in Washington, D.C. Activists argue that in Texas, Republicans have paid no apparent political price for banning abortion after six weeks. Some activists and Republican lawmakers now say that the 15-week laws are not ambitious enough. Seriously. James Langford of Oklahoma agrees. Senator Joni Ernst, a Republican from Ohio, is planning on introducing legislation in the Senate to ban abortion nationwide. 
Marjorie Dennis Feller, the president of Susan B. Anthony's list, has spoken privately with 10 possible Republican presidential contenders, including Trump. They all assured her that they would be supportive of a nationwide ban. How's that going to work out? Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. On the line with us is Professor Yasha Monk. He's a professor of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University, the founder of Persuasion, contributor to The Atlantic, and a senior fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations. But most consequentially for our conversation today, he's the author of an extraordinary new book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Uh, yashamonk.com, Y-A-S-C-H-A-M-O-U-N-K.com is his website. Yasha Monk with an underscore between the two words is his Twitter handle. Um, Professor Monk, welcome to the program. I, I, I read your book. I, nine out of ten times, I just don't have the time to read the books of people who are going to be guests on our program. Um, we got it in here. I did a book report on it, and I was so fascinated by it, I took it home and read it. And um, I think this is like one of the most important issues that people can be discussing anywhere in the world right now. Um, I was in South Sudan around the time that they separated from Sudan, some, from Sudan when they had their, their referendum because Sudan to the north was brown-skinned Arabs who were raiding the black-skinned um, uh, non-Muslims in South Sudan and taking them slave, as slaves. I mean, it was just insane. We were, we, were, uh, repa- we were there as they were repatriating slaves. And I, I, this question of can diverse democracies function, can, can diverse countries even survive, is a huge one. Can you start out by, by talking about what a diverse democracy is and what the history of them might be? Most countries think of themselves as diverse in some important ways. Um, you know, in Europe for centuries, people waged wars against each other over minor doctrinal differences within Protestantism or between Protestants and Catholics. But nevertheless, we can sort of look at differences in magnitude. And there are some countries today that are relatively homogeneous, like Japan or like Bulgaria. And there's others like the United States, like uh, India, 
like much of Western Europe, like Britain and Australia, which have a huge number of different ethnic and religious groups within them. Looking at history for my book, I, I, I show that a lot of the times these societies have gone deeply wrong, that they've suffered from extreme injustices, that they've fallen apart into forms of war and civil war and ethnic cleansing and, and genocide. And there's deep reasons for that. And part of that is our human nature. We are deeply groupish. We have this instinct to form groups, often to treat members within that group very morally, very altruistically, but also often to discriminate in terrible ways against others. And this can be triggered in all kinds of different ways, along all kinds of different ethnic and religious and racial lines with racial classifications that work in very different ways at different times. But the basic mechanism is the same. And so what we're trying to do today which is to build these ethnically and religiously diverse democracies that actually treat the members as true equals, is unprecedented. It's really difficult, but I think it can succeed. The story you mentioned, India, for example, right now Modi is trying to, not trying to, he's successfully increasing his power, his political power, by basically trashing Muslims. I'm, you know, you've got horrible ethnic battles going on in India right now. Here in the United States, you've got Donald Trump and large chunks of the Republican Party committed to trashing black people or gay people or, you know, pick your minority, brown-skinned immigrants from south of the border. You've got the same problem in Brexit. I, there are a number of studies done back before that vote showing that many of the pro-Brexit voters were, you know, people who were opposed to people of different ethnicities coming to Great Britain to work. Has there ever been, long-term, a successful, pluralistic, genuinely diverse democracy anywhere in the world? No. No. So one of the things that I tried to do in writing this book is to say, hey, if I find some great example of a country that really works wonderfully, I could go and spend some time there. That sounds like fun. And then I could, you know, describe the model and say we should emulate it. But that doesn't really exist. Uh, we have lots of societies that have gone badly wrong. We don't have a lot of inspiring examples. But for me, when you start with, with naivety and with optimism about this project, when you say it should be really easy to get along, then you end up looking at the current state of American society and saying it's, it's terrible. And so there's no hope because how can we fail this easy undertaking? The future must be worse. If you start with a realistic appreciation of some of the mechanisms that have always driven humans to form these groups and discriminate in favor of the in-group, of the much more extreme ways in which other societies and our own society in the past have gone wrong, then you can look back at the present and say, we've actually made real progress in the last few decades. We are a much more tolerant uh, society than we were 100 or 50 or even 25 years ago. We are seeing real socioeconomic progress of immigrants and of minority groups, uh, and we can build on some of our fundamental principles on the basic principles of the American Republic of uh, liberal democracy uh, in order to make it succeed. So in a strange way, uh, you know, the violent history of diverse societies tells us the stakes, but it can also inspire uh, pride in some of the things we've accomplished and, and hope to, to keep making progress in the coming decades. This seems to be the, as I mentioned a moment ago, it seems to be the primary dividing line, the, the primary schism in American society is there are in-groups that the law protects but does not bind, and there are out-groups that the law binds but does not protect. And historically, that's been, you know, white people versus everybody else, or straight people versus everybody else in terms of gender. Straight men, in fact, for that matter. From reading your book, one of the things that really troubled me was the idea that when democracies are stressed, 
these really bubble to the surface, these differences, and they become much, they become magnified. How can American society, and, or any society for that matter, I mean, we're seeing these challenges in Israel, we're seeing them in South Africa, we're seeing them in, in Great Britain, we're seeing them, we just saw them in the French election, um, you know, for goodness sakes. A large part of that was about, oh my God, there are Muslims among us. What are the specifics that a democracy can can embrace or do? I mean, is this a matter of messaging? Is it a matter of law? American schools, for example, right now are more segregated than they were in 1965. This is not the function of law as much as it is choice. So what do we do? You know, a couple of points. The first is that I think it's actually really dangerous and it's wrong to think of America as fundamentally pitting whites versus people of color. There's very few things today that liberals and uh, Republicans, Democrats and conservatives agree on. But, but one of them is this idea of a rising demographic majority for Democrats. That's what drives a lot of the demographic panic on the right. A lot of the people who think if we continue to have immigration, or if we allow people uh, who are not white to vote in, in equal measure at the polls, then Democrats are always going to win. And so that's going to be terrible, according to them. Um, it's also what drives some triumphalism on the left. Uh, but that's not actually how most people think of themselves. The identity of uh, Latinos, the identity of a rapidly growing number of mixed race people in the country, the identity of Asian Americans is much more complicated than that. Even among African Americans, there's interesting divisions between people who've been here for a very long time, whose ancestors were enslaved, and people who are descended from more recent immigrants from Kenya and Nigeria and, and other places. And when you look at our politics, uh, you see that that's not what voting behavior is actually like. So in 2020, the only reason why Donald Trump was competitive at the election is that he significantly increased his share of the vote among every non-white voting group, including African-Americans and Asian-Americans and especially Latinos. And the only reason why Joe Biden is the legitimately elected 46th president of the United States is that he significantly increased his share of the vote among white voters relative to Hillary Clinton four years ago. So I actually think one of the important things is to resist this narrative that American reality or that America's future is going to be this battle between whites and people of color. That is not how most people think of themselves. It is not the kind of society we should create. And I certainly don't want to live in a society where I can walk down the street and guess who you vote for by, by the color of your skin, by the way you'd have to vote for the other political yet, party that you probably do. This morning, um, Politico just published a new poll by Morning Consult where they asked if a candidate is accused of blank, is it a major problem? Uh, domestic violence, 81% of de Democrats said, yes, that's a major problem, only 67% of Republicans. But then you get into into these cleavage points. Racism, 80 Democrats would say that's disqualifying, 80%. Only 38% of Republicans say being a racist disqualifies you from being a Republican candidate. No, but I'm sorry, but that's just wrong. They're not saying that being a racist does disqualify you. They're saying that being accused of being a racist doesn't no, they, they disqualify They say if the, if the candidate we, makes racist remarks that disqualify that doesn't disqualify if accused of having made racist remarks right? no it has made. oh he's accused of you're right i'm sorry that's the actual yeah and so and, and and sorry but this is the fault of my friends on the left if you go around like some of our best-selling authors saying that every person is racist this is literally what robin d'angelo says that everybody is racist every white person is racist right uh then what you do is to cheapen the term and then a lot of our fellow citizens say hey when somebody's accused of racism who knows what they mean I'm going to tune out. Racism is the worst sin, uh, one of the very worst sins of which humans are capable. Mm. And to cheapen the term by saying everybody is racist, uh, you have exactly the effect of no longer being able 
uh, to exclude people who truly are racist. So, uh, sorry, but I think our friends on the left side of the aisle are partially to blame for that. And, and this poll means something slightly different than the headline might suggest. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. So, do we get there? I mean, the there presumably that we're all trying to get to is a society that is essentially blind to to color or gender to to these points of cleavage. Do I have that right? Anti-Semitism, homophobia, racism. Well, yes and no. So people will always be groupish. They'll always give big importance to the groups that, that, that they're from. And that's perfectly fine. That's one of the things that makes America great, that we have this real diversity. And of course, we need to be very aware of the way in which some of those cleavages structure our society today. There is racist and other anti-Semitic, other injustice in the United States today. And we have to describe those clearly. I do think that we want to build a society in which some of those cleavages become less important than they are today, in part because they structure our lives less. And we certainly want a society in which for people might still be very proud of uh, their cultural origins, of their religion, perhaps also of their ethnicity to some extent, uh, they'll also feel that they have a real commonality uh, with uh, Americans who come from different groups, that there's something that we share as American citizens and a real mutual solidarity that we've been able to build. There are, there are some who suggest that as societies go through changes, goes back to like Strauss and Howe's work back in the 90s, that as societies go through changes, there's, there's like this crisis moment. It's like giving birth. Everything seems to be falling apart, but in fact, a new order is being birthed. Is that where we're at right now? Are we in one of these positive turning points, even though it seems so negative? Or are we actually in a crisis uh, here in the United States and around the world? And like I said, in France, you know, et cetera. Well, I think it's too early to tell. Well, it depends on the actions that we take. It depends on the decisions we make. It depends on the politicians we elect as well. But actually, when you step away from the political level and look at some of the changes in the heart of society over the last decades, they are positive. When you step away a little bit and look at, for example, the hugely increased acceptance of uh, gay people in this country, when you look at the hugely uh, increased acceptance of something like interracial marriage, which a majority of Americans opposed 30 years ago, uh, when you look at uh, the rapid socioeconomic mobility um, for uh, basically every ethnic minority groups, as well as for the immigrants who are coming into our country. Um, there is real progress we've made, and we should also be aware of that. It's a remarkable book. It's, uh, it's titled The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure by Professor Yasha Monk. Check it out. It's really, it's really great. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for dropping by and talking with us. Thank you so much. Fascinating conversation. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Can America become a truly functioning and truly diverse society? We're definitely not there yet. Morris in Long Beach, California. Morris, I'm, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on Yasha Monk's thoughts. Anyone that breathes American air is not automatically a racist. But anyone that breathes American air is automatically race conscious. We're all conscientious of it. Yes. Going back to the scholars, uh, Aristotle, when he said God made man in his image, and everybody knows that God is not a Negro, so the Negro is not a man. And then, of course, Thomas Jefferson said that black people were odorous. You, you've got to go back and see how we've all been trained, conditioned, and programmed. That's why we are race conscious. But we're not all active in trying to decimate other people because they're different. And that's where the is, the racist, comes in as opposed to being conscious of the differences. That's yeah. all I want to say. Well, you, okay. Yeah, you said it very well, and I completely agree. And I think it's a really important point to make. And that's where we need to get to. We can be conscious of each other's differences, but that doesn't mean that we hate on each other. It doesn't mean we try to destroy each other. It doesn't mean we try to uh, disempower or even kill each other, which is where we've been. So well said, Morris. Nanette in uh, Monrovia, California. Hey, Nanette, what's on your mind today? In reference to your guest earlier talking about unity of a racially diverse democracy. Mm-hmm. Yasha Monk. And the other day i had a thought about this what if americans started identifying as american italian american german american african we once did the other way around we once did i mean in the in the latter part of the of the 1800s in the in that period from around 1870 when the anti-chinese laws were passed by congress i think that was 1876 right up through the early 20th century, uh, the 19-teens, uh, in fact, uh, particularly in, our, in the eastern, east coast big cities, you had wars going on, riots and, and open, I mean, murderous hostility between, literally between Italian immigrants and Irish immigrants. So we've been there. Right. So anyways, I'm saying if we referred to ourselves using our ethnic origins as a modifier, but identifying as American first, it could go a long way to perhaps instilling some unity in this very diverse nation. Well, that's interesting. So if I started calling myself a Norwegian American, but I'm only, I mean, my father was 100% Norwegian, so I'm half Norwegian, but you know, I'm also uh, British and Welsh from my mother and and so how do you, do, you know, I, I think at the, at, the, at the end of the day, Nanette, pretty much all of us are really kind of mongrels. Maybe we should just stop right. all those, uh, you know, any, any kind of anyway, uh, uh, ethnic is not the word, you know, country uh, associations. I don't know. I, right. I, I don't see any easy answers here, Nanette. I, th- I think we just need well, to learn, learn how to work, live and work together. Identif- if we identify as Americans first, yeah. That would go a long way, in my thinking. Yeah. Um, I had two other quick quick thoughts. Okay. Now that um, now that Katenji Brown Jackson has been confirmed, is there anything that says that Breyer couldn't change his mind and not retire? No. That's well, one. I, I, there's there's, I mean, it's it's conceivable, but it's extremely unlikely. Uh, there's no Just laws, you know, around this. Yeah. Just go ahead. A thought. And my third thought was. 
um, after watching Servant of the People on Netflix, it occurred to me that a servant of the people could be for Vladimir Putin what um, the White House Correspondents' Dinner was to uh, Donald Trump when he was being roasted by Obama. Now, I have not seen this. This is the movie series that... about a hapless history professor that gets elected president and references to Russia and their aggression and blah, blah, blah. And he openly states that Ukraine wants to go a different way than Russia in the program. The character states this. Right. And I just thought, wow, that seems like an apt comparison to me. Yeah, yeah. So that's I, all. That's interesting. I, I, I think you may well be right in that. Thank you very much for the call. Certainly, you know, catapulted him into fame and fortune, as, as the old saying goes. Dr. Bay in Hertford, Connecticut. Hey, Bill, Dr. Bay, what's up? Bear with me for one minute. Okay. I happen to be a holistic doctor. That means that I just don't use drugs, and I look at the whole person. So we use herbs, we look at the whole person. The first thing a person does when they come to, not even come to see me, but they usually speak to me on the phone, or they'll speak to me through the Internet. They say, this is my problem. Doc, what have you got for it? They don't want to hear about how long it's going to take to fix. They don't want to hear about how long it took them to get to this point, and it's usually 20 to 30 years. They want a relief, and I can give them some relief, but I can't help them get better in a matter of days or weeks. Sure, and I'm guessing that this is an analogy to something political? Exactly. But the first thing I have to get them to admit is that they did do it. You've been eating, you, you've been eating too action. much sugar for too many years, and surprise, surprise, you know, your teeth are falling out, or, or whatever it may be. I, I absolutely get it. So is that, are you speaking of, uh, you know, Yashimon. some specific? Okay, uh, Yashimon. So you're talking about racism. Right, not just racism, but everything that we're doing. Right. But specifically, we can spread out from the racism to talk about other things. When he says Dr. DeAngelis is saying that all white people are racist as in, a bad thing because it's not just so-called white people they're europeans this system and you fell into that trap by saying it's not law that's making people separate now yes it is it is law they have been raised on a particular law again like 30 years of sugar 30 years of bad diet and now you have problems so we have been raised on this from day one in this country i speak to people and many of them, all of my clients, have seen me in person. When they hear me speak, they don't realize that I have color. I've had people hang up on me because I'm a woman. I have a sister that's a surgeon. And she comes in, and she happens to be short, and she's a woman. I want to see the doctor, not the nurse. Yeah. It's still going forward. But I'm saying, my point is, is that you must admit what you have done incorrectly and then you have to take steps to correct it. And just because you've written a law in 1960, 1965, or even 1975, you are not going to correct it. And you are going to backslide. And that's what's happening now. And until we can face up to that, and yes, there have been ancient civilizations that did have multi-ethnic people. There are over 3,000 different ethnic groups in Africa. One of the major problems now, because you made false borders, and now they're crushed together, and they can't find ways to deal with each other. Right, the legacy of Egypt was made of, of thousands of yeah. groups. But we must admit what we have done incorrectly and then slowly but surely take the steps to fix it 
do things to fix it, and then we can well, get out the, of this mess. This is, this is where it gets difficult or complicated. I mean, you know, we tried busing back in the 70s. We've, we've tried all kinds of things. I mean, what are the steps that you take to create a genuinely multiracial, pluralistic society Stronger laws against discrimination, essentially. Is that your argument? Because, I, yeah, I Not don't disagree discrimination, with discrimination, but this, it has to be fairly placed. Yeah. So that if someone puts a gun to the back of someone's head and pulls the trigger, there has to be some way to say, you have to answer for that. Right, like and the cop in Grand Rapids. Individually. Yeah. Yeah. It's not him individually, because we keep saying, oh, the bad apple. It's not the bad apple, it's the system. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I, I, I get it, Dr. B. I, I, I totally get it, and, and your point is very well made. Thank you very much. Robbie in Dallas, Texas. Hey, Robbie, what's on your mind today? It goes back to the point you often make about white terrorism and, and whatnot. There's a lot of decent people, white people in America, and it, it almost... It takes away the hate because there are some that treat you so well. And if they don't deal with that fringe element among them that's driven by fear and hate, they're going to ultimately destroy this country for everyone from within. They have to be put down. And you go to January 6th, when people can violate the rule of law and the sanctity of our institutions and not be met with a force that says this is what we will not tolerate, there's the incentive for them to ultimately do it again. Okay, Corky in Rochester, New York. Hey, Corky, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? I think I figured out what uh, Dr. King was talking about when he said, I've been to the mountain. I won't get there with you, but we'll get there. And I think it's time because with the interracial marriages taking place, producing offsprings, and there are some races that mix that produce really gorgeous women and handsome men, you know? Yeah, be careful here, Corky, where you're going with this. Because those, I mean, our, our understanding of what is gorgeous or handsome is being run through a cultural filter. I remember Dick Gregory when, when uh, he used to be on the board of uh, our, this organization that I ran up in New Hampshire, and we traveled around the world together. And, and I, I remember one time him talking about Aunt Jemima. And he said, you know, I never, ever wanted to hop into bed with Aunt Jemima. But all those white ladies no, I, on TV that they were pushing at me all the time. Now, keep in mind, this conversation, you know, he and I had back in the 1970s. Um, but he said, all those white ladies on TV that they're pushing at me all the time, those, they look good. Or words to that effect. I mean, and, and he was telling it as a joke, essentially. But, I, you know, it, our standards of beauty are cultural as, I mean, they're... So be careful, Corky. I, you know, I get it that you think that, you know, everybody marrying everybody is going to solve the problem. I don't think that's going to solve the problem. I think it's a step. Miguel in Frederick, Maryland. Hey, Miguel, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's on your mind today? Of this discussion, I'm 53 years old. I've lived in integrated communities that were just barely integrated. And repeatedly as a child, I was always walking down the street, someone throws a rock at me, misses me. I throw a rock back, hits them. I'm the trouble. I'm causing trouble. So I'm supposed to go through life abused. It's akin to the um, Goldilocks story where um, you see the bears on the ground with guns to their head and the police taking taking um, the report from Goldilocks. Right. I'm so tired of the whole idea of the 
calling out the racism and bigotry and the structural impediments to achieve the American dream in the United States being seen as the new racism. It's white fragility, and that leads to Ron DeSantis. This whole idea that every child that is non-white has to cater to the white child's feelings goes directly to what I, I came to. And so I, I'm just so, and this is why I'm independent now, because it's simple. I have no concern losing. I want to lose fighting. This is what I learned in the United States. I learned that even if you're losing, it's not over until it's over. This whole idea of trying to bring people along with that. I had a friend that I cut off when we got into arguments. He's like, I feel like you don't trust me. You, it's your kids. And you know what I said? I don't. Because you need to understand that if I leave my child with you, you don't let someone snatch them up because they're a black child. You need to pay attention to what's going on. When I watch your child, I make sure that I take all of that into account. Racism is a deal killer. And if racism is not a deal killer for you, other people can be subject. But after 53 years, I'm like, racism is not something I can't do. Because I listen to Nia Nia Moeller. First they came for the the labor unionists, and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. And there's no one left. And that is exactly what's going on. Thank you for listening to me. I totally get it, Miguel. And I'm, you know, racism is a deal breaker for me, too. I'm wondering what the solution is. Is it just that, as as Yasha Monk is implying, uh, or maybe saying, that at, at, at some point society reaches a threshold where we pass this and we just collectively say, okay, this, this isn't how we're going to run our lives anymore or our society. We're just not going to accept racism any longer. Is it, or is it? I, I think the, the, the society, it ha- let me tell you, we've already reached that point. You know when we... We reached that point where Martin Luther King was shot. In, but in, if we had reached in, that in, point, in, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump never would have gotten elected. Yeah, but you see, the problem is, is that the majority of the black population in the United States in the South, if there wasn't racial gerrymandering and all this other stuff going on there, the Congress would be different. So we're allowing them to pick congressmen that don't represent their own population. That's true. And continuing this kind of oligarchic control. So the point is, is like, how do we bring them along? We bring them along by having our values and standing by it. And if nothing gets done in Congress, if a defense dollar, defense reappropriation bill is not done, they're willing to shut down the government just so that they can have control of some other woman's ovaries. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But we're unwilling to shut down the government to make sure there's a democracy. My yeah. point is, if you let the South alone, if you leave those guys alone, don't send them our tax dollars, right? Then they have to deal with the issues. What we do is we allow them, like Joe Manchin, to get everything and we get nothing. And a democracy only works is when you vote your values. And if our, we're electing people that don't don't fight for the values that we have out of um, patronage, there's a time to be pragmatic. But we're so past that now. Yeah. So, so your, solution, your solution is to get politically active. I am totally. Yeah. Uh, every election, don't catch a word of Ed. And my my point is, and don't bend. It's like if we can't come to, a, if we cannot compromise, what we're doing now is that we're not compromising. We're saying, oh, we'll do what you do. That is domestic violence. Always making an excuse for someone that's abusing you. Yeah, yeah. Thank I'm, you. I totally get it. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Miguel. Well said, George in Chicago. Hey, George, what what say you? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Just briefly. 
far as I'm concerned, the R in Republican has stood for racism since shortly after Nixon lost in 1960, and they started moving that direction with Goldwater. Nixon took his cue from the kind of tactics and strategy that Governor Wallace used and yep. put it to work in 72. And whether it's out front and up front or subliminal and underplayed, the racist card is played regularly by the Republican Party and every Republican candidate and has been ever since. And we can't deny what our eyes see and our ears hear. It is what it is. Which raises the question, back to Yasha Monk's book, is how can you have a truly pluralistic society, a functioning democracy, when one of the two political parties is openly pushing racism? How do you well, do the that? other the other party just has to get up earlier, work harder, and work later. And yeah, I think the answer to, to, to my semi-rhetorical question is you have to politically crush the other party. I mean, you know, just you you have uh, they have to be seen as the the debris of a of a collapsed society. The way that we should have for the last you know 150 years viewed the Confederacy. But, you know, the whole lost cause thing and the Confederate memorials and all this other stuff, you know, they kept the... And, and now on April 30th, they're doing a big thing on Stone Mountain. A bunch of white supremacists are getting together for a big nationwide celebration in front of Stone Mountain. The Southern Poverty uh, Law Center is, is asking people to contact the, the, the people who run Stone Mountain and ask them not to invite these white supremacists racists to their, no, you know, the for their annual event. Kind of stuff. The fact that this kind of stuff is happening is why all honor and praise is due to President Biden for issuing a full presidential pardon to former Secret Service agent Abraham Bolden. Amen. He stood up for equal justice under the law and for just the basic concept. In 1964, for God's sake, when, when it was a hundred yeah. times harder than it is now. And also, you and your partner, Lamar Waldron, deserve credit because you brought the case of Mr. Uh, Bolden to a larger public. I remember hearing your on-the-air interview with him, what was it, like 15 years ago? More like and 10, probably, but yeah, we've interviewed him a number of times, yeah. Yes, and that was included in your books on the Kennedy assassination. Yep. Um, it's also, from a personal standpoint, even though we're of different generations and different races, uh, Mr. Bolden and I are both Southsiders from the great South Side of Chicago, and so was because my dad. of your work, um, I got very interested in his case. I got my local library to buy his book and put it in the stacks. I bought a copy for myself, and I read everything I could find about Bolden, and you know, contacted senators and congressmen, and, and wrote to presidents and said, "This guy deserves a pardon." Um, I don't know if anybody you, heard George. my voice, but. I mean, that's, that's what it takes. Um, it, that's that's what it takes. Thank you. Yeah, but the other thing to keep in mind is is that he was prosecuted and persecuted in, into a horrendous imprisonment mm -hmm. by a guy named Edward V. Hanrahan, who was the Democratic U.S. attorney for the District of Northern Illinois at the time, and he was a total creature of Richard J. Daley and his machine. Right. And after Nixon took over, he was, of course, dismissed as U.S. attorney, and he got elected Cook County State's attorney, and he was the guy who caused the uh, homicidal raid on the Black Panther headquarters in Chicago, where really? Mark Clark and Fred Hampton were murdered, and the police lied about what they did, and 
court civil court cases eventually found out that they had blasted through the doors firing 80 or 90 shots and only one shot came back and they claimed that shots that were made by the panthers uh and and showed them in pictures turned out to be nail heads but the the i mean the fact the fact is is that the same guy that uh railroaded abraham bolden into the cruel imprisonment he had to endure and the loss of his career was the same guy who made sure that the Black Panthers got broken and killed. Wow. So I did not know that. Yeah. I, I, Lamar probably does, but I did not know that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah or, just, or I didn't remember just, that if I did know it at one point in time. That's an amazing yeah, story. Anybody can just Google Edward V. Hanrahan or um, look him up on Wikipedia, and it, it tells you the basics of, of his story. And, of course, yeah. after that, his own career died. He couldn't get elected to anything anymore. Yeah, and a fine thing that is. George, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for bringing a, a little bit of history to the program. I appreciate it. And and spot on about Abraham Bolden. And Lamar and I uh, just busted our chops on that. We brought we actually brought his case. We brought his case to the attention of a number of major political figures, including Ted Kennedy back in the day. It was just so hard to get anything done. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It was like the whole power structure of the country was going, well, yeah, this guy was convicted. I mean, what's your problem? Uh, I'm so glad that this pardon was granted. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. David in North Miami Beach. Hey, David, your thoughts. Hey, y'all. Hey. Yes, I'm afraid you're wrong. They don't want life in the 1950s. They want a cartoon version of the 1950s. They want the caste system. They want the prosperity. But without the sacrifices made in the 30s and 40s to get there. Fine. Go back to the 50s. You can, you know, taxism and uh, classism, all that good stuff. But you have to pay the full taxes and reinvestment. Or a truly meritocratic uh, caste system, a little more militaristic, actually based on experience, education. Oh, that's because interesting. Really so, so someone you, to look down on. Right. I, I, let me finish your thought, and I'll rant. Since I need someone to look down on, so at least let's try to make it somewhat on the merits, uh, you know, be a bit of a, a bit of a gerontocracy at risk, but at least it would be the trade-off of, like the military, that the, you know you have more benefits and privilege based yeah. on putting skin in the game instead of being born on third base and called a triple. I get it. And, uh, so, so in, in, in other words, they want to go back to the fifties. They want to go back to racial segregation. They want to go back to women being under men's thumbs. They want to go back to abortion being illegal, all those things, but they don't want to go back to a 91% top income tax rate. They don't want to back, go back to an era where a third of Americans were unionized and granted that it was only white men, but nonetheless, they don't want to go back to an area where, where unionization was widespread. Yeah, I, t I, to I totally get it. Thank so, you very much. Thank you very much for that, David. Tim in Aloha, Oregon. Hey, Tim, what's up? 
Yeah, I just wanted to give you a little bit of a summary, you know, because we're about the same age. Currently, what's happening based on the Trump ideology, you know, that Access Hollywood video, which would have ruined the campaign for most people, but it actually helped him. Because I saw an interview with a, I'm actually middle-aged lady after that. She was a registered Republican. She said, you know, boys will be boys just as right. long as he keeps those Muslim terrorists and those Mexican rapists away from me. That's what she said, okay? That's the mentality that's going on. That's why 74 million people voted for that guy. I think it goes beyond that, Tim. I think by asserting that he could grab women by the crotch whenever he felt like it, he was asserting power. He, oh, absolutely. he was asserting white male power. And for Republicans, that's exactly what they want to hear. Boys will be boys. Basically. Yeah, well, look yeah, at Herbster. I mean, over the weekend, Donald Trump was out in, what is it, Nebraska, whatever that state is, where, where this Herbster guy is running. And Trump was there to endorse him. And he's been accused by six or eight women now of groping of, them, of including one. molestation, yeah. Yeah, including one just last week. She walked yeah. by and he reached up under her dress and grabbed her. And Trump is like, yeah, 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 they'll say anything. And the Republicans are like, yeah, who cares, who cares? You know, because it's he's asserting power and authority is a real man that's what's what that's what's going on yeah, yeah. and if, if you look at that 50s and 60s era you know how important tv was because that was you know that was a real transition in, in the society yes. and then you look at a program like uh, richard Bull and have gun will travel where he came from the famous hotel and the employees he called them hey boy and hey girl mm. you should remember that yeah you see what I mean? That was, in, and then you looked at Hop Singh on uh, Bonanza, which was on for 13 years. Yep. How many black friends did the Cleavers have? You see what I mean? Right, Those no. were important aspects of communication oh, to the American public. Back absolutely. Then. Everybody, all minorities were either written out of the media, first movies and then television, or right. when they did show up, they showed up typically as buffoons or criminals. Right. There, there was the occasional entertainer, you know, Sammy right. Davis Jr., but that he was the exception that proved the rule. He was he, he, he was, was with the Rat Pack. That's know, right. He, he, he was, was the little yeah. touch that allowed them to say, "Oh, we're not like the rest of those people." Wink, exactly, wink. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spot on, Tim. Very, very well said. Eric in Serafina, New Mexico. Hey, Eric, what's up? I grew up in northern New Mexico, where it's a lot of back in the early late seven, late forties, early fifties. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of prejudice between the Hispanics and non-Hispanics. I grew up prejudiced. And then I moved to Hawaii in 1968, where there is no majority. And I learned that it doesn't matter what a person looks like. I had two roommates that were half Hawaiian, half Chinese. There was a Jamaican uh, musician came over to play with my, my roommates. One of my roommates was Norwegian. There was this incredible mix of, of genetic material that got together. And they were all great people that you could trust to be friends and not try and screw you over. That attitude has stuck with me ever since. I'm 80 years old now, and I've seen from experience that it really doesn't make any more difference what a person looks like than the clothes they wear Yeah. when it comes to telling what kind of a person they are. Yeah. And it's such a loss to have all this prejudice getting in the way of all that. There's so many resources that are just going to waste because we won't talk to people that don't look like us. I, I agree, Eric, and, and you know, go back to the black rat, white rat study, and 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 others that show that the best way to solve racism is to have an integrated society, is for people to live up, you know, grow up living near and knowing and interacting with and working with people of different races and different backgrounds and different gender identities. And I mean, you, know, you fill in the blanks when people get to know other people. 
They stop thinking of them as other and start thinking of them as we. That is the first step, and that's what we need to be doing. That's where we need to be putting our efforts. And 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 frankly, to hell with the white racists who are yelling and screaming about it. I'm over it. I agree. Yeah, thanks for sharing your story. It's a good one. Nancy in Elkhart, Indiana. Hey, Nancy, what's on your mind today? You, uh, when we were talking about when I was reading your rant this morning, and then when you when you really explained what what you learned about in the 1950s about this racism, I don't think we had a name for it. When we heard about it, when I read about it in school, actually we didn't read. The teachers explained it to us. We heard about those northern fantastic soldiers going and doing something with the southern soldiers. Our northern soldiers were so great because they were going down south, they were down, to um, help getting those slaves Mm -hmm. freed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you need to help someone, that must mean they're inferior to a child's mind. Yeah. And even as as I got older, I can remember specifically, uh, you know, how uh, our parents were in World War II, and when we would ask, I asked my mother specifically, hey, what was Dad doing in World War II? And I was probably about, oh, I don't know, maybe in, maybe this would be in the 60s or something. And she would explain, oh, well, he was, they were, the, uh, Ger- the Germans were doing things against those Jewish people, like Bobby, you know, someone that I would know. And I'd say, well, what, what did they do wrong? Mm-hmm. Well, the Germans didn't like them, so there's a kind of racism. And, you know, they would say something about putting them in gas chambers. Yeah. And nobody explained why, ever. I recall no conversation in elementary school, junior high school, or high school, frankly. For me, that was, you know, I, I, I went into elementary school, I think, in 1955. During that entire period of time, I recall no explicit or specific discussion about racism. Now, Louise took a no. she, Louise went to East Lansing High, and that that's a college town, and you know, a lot of the kids were children's of, children of professors at MSU, and she recalls a very specific class in high school on racism, where they read uh, Black Like Me, and they read uh, uh, Dick Gregory's book, uh, the N Word book. That and, was college for me. Yeah, yeah. They read several books, and and it changed her life. I mean, she still literally still talks about it now. You know, all these years later, and that was in the '60s. But in Lansing, I I experienced none of that. Uh, I, you know, just the idea of race, and and that's the key to white privilege, is that you don't and even have to think about race. It, it's going to take years and years until that gets embedded. Yeah. In a generation's mind. Well, I had my first black teacher. Oh, I'll never forget Mr. Pittman. I had him in eighth grade, and I was enthralled, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to hear him. He wouldn't talk about it, right. but I thought, I've never seen an educated black person. Yeah. And then when I got in college, um, I took a class called Learning About, it was an extra. Remember how we would take extra classes? Mm-hmm. Anyway, and then when I went to college, I brought home a couple books, and my brother told me later, he was my little brother, he was like in seventh grade, and just like you said, I had something by Dick Gregory, mm-hmm. and he read it and later on. But the idea, I was learning about racism, and then when I, I was just shocked. Anyway, when I became a teacher, 
I I just worked on that racism with my children, and I'm 72 years old, mm. and I'll, I will do it constantly. And so that, the whole idea is I think it's going to take generation after generation. Um, you know, I, we had black and white children in our, in our schools. It's going to take years to get something that's poisonous in a culture, and if we don't keep yeah. doing it, it won't go away. And this is why particularly in heavily segregated areas in the South, like Texas and, and Georgia. This is why the white power structure does not want the history of racism in the United States taught. It does not That's want right. you know, the, the, the true history of, of the Civil War taught. It doesn't want anything to do with it. And it's not just they don't want critical race theory. I mean, they literally don't want their students to know that the South had ceased to be a democracy over the issue of race, over the issue of slavery by 1850. And they the don't South. want to see pictures of hangings. They don't want to see, no. um, they don't want to have them see the, the, the show Roots. Oh, that, that should be a requirement. Yeah, that was, that was a big deal. And that was, what, in the 80s, the 90s? Oh, that was the 80s, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, 90s. I, well, yeah, anyway, yeah. those things should be requirements. Well, yeah. I'm, I babble on. But anyway, I think uh, you've got to have education, and those people that believe that don't look, Trump people are just not educated. Thank I, you. I agree. Thank you, Nancy. And this is, the, this is at the core of the whole book banning, book burning thing, is don't expose children to these ideas. Now, the upside of this is that this generation growing up, the Zoomer generation, as it were, this is the most integrated, most diverse generation in the history of America. I believe that's a good thing. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Charles in Coos Bay, Oregon. Charles, we have one minute left. I want to send out happy birthday greetings to the Bicentennial Boy, uh, Ulysses Grant, born on this day in 1822. Really? Yes, indeed. I want people to focus on the history that he left us, not so much that we, what we know as general, but as president, his fierce defending of freed African Americans, his yep. creating the Justice Department to defend the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and vigorously fighting the Ku Klux Klan. And also a visionary. He saw a world court in the future, and he saw a functioning biracial democracy. Yeah, you're absolutely right on all points, Charles. And, uh, and Grant was an extraordinary man and, and struggled terribly with alcoholism and other things, but he was still an extraordinary man. Charles, thank you so much. And probably PTSD from being you know, a war general in Civil War. Just imagine. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget... Democracy is not a spectator sport, so get out there, get active. Like Alexei Navalny says, get active. We'll see you tomorrow. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.